all my buddies will be there. We'll just party it up. Except for hell is outer darkness. Utter separation from God. Every good and perfect thing that we experience in this world. Let me back that up. Bible says every good and perfect thing that we experience in this world. Whether from your neighbor, who's not a believer, doesn't matter. Whether from someone touching your life or just circumstances touching your life. Every good and perfect thing comes to you from your Father. It's God sent. It's not of themselves that they do something good. It's something that comes from God. So what is utter separation from God? Separation from all good things. All good things. You have the fire, which normally we think of the fire is good. It's warm, you know, it will be nice and toasty by the fire. But the reality is you have the fire without the light, without the warmth. Just the gnashing of teeth. They're alone in the darkness, in the torment. And for a moment in that plague, God lets the Egyptians experience a small taste of it. Just a small taste of what that's going to be like. And you remember, Pharaoh was upset, right? He would always come to Moses and say, oh, I sinned. Please pray that God would remove this plague. And Moses would say, this time, don't, don't be deceitful with, with the Lord do what you're saying that you're going to do. And every time, as soon as the locusts went away, the swarm of flies went away, as soon as the darkness went away, what do we see Pharaoh doing? Hardens his heart, sets his resolve. Ah, uh, you know, never mind. I didn't mean that. I'm not letting you go. In fact, if I ever see your face again, it'll be the last time you ever see my face. That's how Pharaoh was speaking to Moses when we, when we closed last week. And when we see that, what we're going to see this week especially is God, for the last time, turn him over. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, doesn't it? That when man hardens his heart to a point, the Lord will turn him over. Turn him over to that abased mind to do the things that he ought not do. He, he's going to allow the opportunity for Pharaoh to have to make a choice. And folks, God's going to give every human being on this planet that same opportunity. Same opportunity to believe, receive, repent, and be saved, or to make a choice to harden their heart. The Bible says God's long-suffering. He keeps reaching out. We see several times that Pharaoh hardens his heart before God does it. We we see Pharaoh constantly going against what, what God's call to him is, yet still... Still, in rebellion against him, God reaches out, but not anymore. The door's shut now. Pharaoh's choice is made. He's turned over to do the things he ought not do. And by the very words that Pharaoh's going to speak this week, the very words that he's going to hear from Moses, he himself, by hardening his heart, by rejecting the Lord, has come to a place where it's going to cost him, what, his firstborn son. Do we really think our choices don't affect the people around us? More often than not, our choices affect the people around us more than they affect us, don't they? Some of the things that that we do, some of the things that we say, it's why it's so vitally important 
with every choice. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding in what? All your ways. Not most of your ways, not some of your ways. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your path. We want to constantly be going to the Lord. That's why Paul said, what did he say? Pray without ceasing, right? Pray without ceasing, constantly looking to the Lord. God, what is it? You know, hey, Lord, I'm headed to work. Just, just guide me. You know, help me have your eyes to see what it is that you have for me to do. Help me have your heart. Help me be your hands, an extension of you here. You know, as we go about our day, that we recognize as we come from place to place that we are prepared to do what it is that God has called us to do. That's the kind of attitude we want to have. Not an attitude like Pharaoh. Pharaoh's attitude is going to condemn not only him. It's going to condemn his firstborn child and the firstborn of every family living in Egypt. Make sure that you understand that. Not just of the Egyptians. The firstborn of every family in Egypt. It's going to affect them all. Well, let's see what the Lord does. As we begin chapter 11, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and on Egypt. Listen, who is this last plague on? It's on Pharaoh. It's coming on him. Fulfillment of the warning that he gave in Exodus 4.22. Now, afterward, he will let you go from here. When when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. He's not just going to say, okay, you can go. He's going to be like throwing a parade to get you out of here. They're going to be excited for you to leave. He says in verse 2, Now speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. The Hebrew word there is sha'al. It means to require. The Lord says, you tell all the families that spent the last 400 years in bondage and slavery to go to their neighbor and ask from their neighbor, require from their neighbor, silver and gold for payment of what was done. For back wages for 400 years. The Lord told Abraham way back in Genesis, these people will be in captivity. They will be in bondage 400 years. But when they leave, God says, I'm going to give them their back wages. They are still going to get paid. Now, this silver and this gold, I want you to keep it in the back of your mind. Because when we get a little further and we see the beginning of the children of Israel building the tabernacle and asking for an offering, I want you to see what happens and what is done with the silver and gold that they're going to receive from their neighbors. But here they are receiving that back pay. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses begins to be exalted. Now listen, isn't it interesting that he says, all the people of Egypt, all the servants of Pharaoh... All the people of, of the children of Israel, they're all looking up to Moses, so one guy's not. His name's Pharaoh. The one guy in charge. He don't think much of Moses. He don't think much of God. He don't think much about any of those things. And his choice is going to have a lot to do with the condemnation of many a man in Egypt. Not only in the firstborn, but as they pursue the children of Israel. Well, he goes on. 
And Moses said, now so Moses is still standing before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, if I see your face again, Moses said, you have spoken well, I'll never see your face again. And then he speaks this to him. And Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. The cost of the firstborn. To the Lord, the firstborn was the preeminent child in the family. Well, you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, right? The Bible tells us that Esau, what, hated his birthright. He hated the fact that he was firstborn. Why? Because to God, the firstborn was set aside to be the spiritual head of the family. The firstborn would step into that role that he would take on that role of, of praying for the family. In, in essence, though there was no priesthood yet, being like the priest for the family, that he would give sacrifice for them, give prayer for them, that he would care about the things of God and make sure the things of God were taught to the children. Now the Lord says, I'm going to kill the firstborn. I'm going to take him. The Lord said from the beginning, and we'll see it again when we get to the law, The firstborn, he said, is mine. Firstborn belongs to me. Give him to me. Consecrate him unto me. So God's call is upon the firstborn. And here we see that God is requiring the death of the firstborn. But folks, even in that, even in that that plague, the death of of the firstborn... What is God doing? God's going to send the death angel. And the death angel, he's going to come through Egypt and he's going to wipe out all the firstborn except for the ones, what? That God protects. God protects all the ones who do what? Who listen to his word. Whether Egyptian or Israelite. Doesn't matter. Whomever abides by the word of the Lord, what's the scripture say? Shall be saved. So let's take a look. As we take a look at this, what does it say? Therefore Moses said in the sight of, uh, or in sight of all the people, he said, thus says the Lord to Pharaoh, I will go in the midst and the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh sits on the throne, the firstborn female servant Firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. What's he talking about? He's saying when it's over, when this plague hits, they're not going to blame the children of Israel. They're not going to point the finger at them, Pharaoh. They're going to point the finger at you. Not one dog will wag its tongue to my kids. Not one person is going to say one word to my children. Now, who are his children? The one who obey his voice. The ones who obey his voice. The Lord said through the Apostle Paul, not all who call themselves Israel are of Israel. 
What did he mean by that? Well, going to church don't make you a Christian. Going, saying a magic words in a prayer. It don't make you a Christian. There's no work that we do that makes us saved. What is it? It's our faith, our trust in Him. What's the evidence of trust? It has always been the same thing. The evidence of trust is obedience. It's always not perfect, but obedience. That God's Word means more to you than just words on a page. More than just something that we're going to hear. Well, look what He does. In verse 8, Now all these your servants shall come down to me and bow to me saying get out and all the people who follow you after that i will go out and then he went from pharaoh in great anger last time that he's going to speak to pharaoh but the lord said to moses pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of egypt so moses and aaron did all these wonders before pharaoh and look at this and the lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. Keep in mind when we read the scriptures, God never in the scriptures violates man's free will. There is no such thing as double election. What is double election? The Bible clearly teaches that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are the called, the elect of God, chosen before the foundation of the world. But Through Paul, the Lord would say, they are chosen according to what? My foreknowledge. What is God's foreknowledge? The understanding that he has of who will receive and who won't. Does it change the fact that God brings his gospel? Even though he knows Pharaoh's not going to listen. It doesn't matter what you do, Moses. He's not going to hear. How many times did God go to Pharaoh? Well, at least ten times. At least ten times he came to him. Even though he knew Pharaoh would reject and that God would solidify his resolve, that the ten plagues would come, that God would paint this perfect picture, yet he didn't violate Pharaoh's free will. Each one of those times, he had choice. But God, knowing his choice, knows he's going to reject no matter what you do, Moses, no matter what you say. He's going to reject. He's not one of mine. He won't choose to come to me. If Pharaoh would have, if Pharaoh could have, if he had within his heart a desire, he would have had that opportunity to be saved. But he wouldn't call out. What does the Bible tell us? If we confess the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We put our faith and trust in him. But there are people today, just like Pharaoh, aren't there? That no matter what you do, no matter what you say, are going to turn their heart against the Lord. That's what has just taken place right here. God has turned him over. He turned Pharaoh over. Okay. Your choice is set. Your mind is made up. And so Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And he did not let the children of Israel go. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, Now here's the part, folks. Listen to this. This month shall be your beginning of months. The month is a month Nisan. It's a month Nisan. That's going to be very important. As we continue to study through the Gospel of John, you'll see why. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So this is their New Year's. Their New Year's, Nisan. 
The beginning of the year will be the beginning of what God is instituting here in chapter 12, what the Passover, God instituting the Passover. Now look, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for each household. And the, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it. According to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now as we go through and talk about the lamb all throughout here, I want you to notice something. It's always singular. It's never plural. It's always pointing to one lamb. All the Old Testament, the question of the entire Old Testament is, where's the lamb? Genesis chapter 22, you remember, Abraham walking with the Lord, receiving the promises of God. God saying to Abraham, listen, in your son Isaac, your seed shall be called. And then the day came when the Lord came to Abraham and said, Abraham. And Abraham responded to the Lord, here I am. And the Lord said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and take him to the mountain that I will show you, Mount Moriah. And there you will offer him as a burnt offering to me. Do you realize Abraham did not hesitate? The book of Hebrews tells us why. By faith, Abraham believed that his son Isaac would be resurrected. His faith was in the resurrection of his son, the fulfillment of the promise that God had given. Because God said, in Isaac, my seed shall be called. In Isaac, that means in Isaac, the Messiah would come through Isaac. He had had no children, wasn't married. So if I kill him, God's going to resurrect him. Abraham believed the word of God so much. Can you imagine that level, that that space of belief that when God would call you to do something so crazy, so insane, that you would just get up, grab your son, tell him, go give your mom a kiss. Then he'd go give his mom a kiss and come to his father and they'd gather up the wood and they'd head to Mount Moriah. And as they get to Mount Moriah, he looks over at his servants. You remember what he said to the servants? You can read it for yourself, Genesis 22. He said, the lad and I are going to this mountain to worship. And we will return. And he took his son up that mountain. Now when he gets to the top of the mountain, his son looks around, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 33 years old. Not a little kid anymore. Dad, I got the wood. Wood was on his back. The Bible says, where was the wood for Jesus? On his back, right? We have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the fire, but... But where's the lamb? And Abraham prophesied. Abraham spoke what he would in, in time name that mountain. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. Do you hear what that says? We can say it so many times that we don't hear what Abraham said. God will provide himself a lamb. God will make himself the lamb that takes away the sin of all the world. So when we read here in Exodus about the establishment of Passover, is it any wonder that everywhere you look, it's a lamb, the lamb, the lamb. 
What is it pointing to? What is the sign? What is it that God is saying? Hey, the Lamb of God. All of this is shadow, folks. It's shadow, not substance. What is the substance? Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 10. The substance is of Christ. These things are the shadow that point to Him. It's a painting that God is painting for the Lamb that would come. So throughout the Old Testament, the cry is, where is the Lamb? And, and what do we do in the Gospel of John? What's the first thing John the Baptist says about Jesus? Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. And in the book of Revelation, worthy is the Lamb. Where is the Lamb? Behold the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. A story of man's redemption from cover to cover through the book. Now, what about you? Are, are we willing to do that crazy thing that God may ask us to do? Are we willing to do that thing that just doesn't make any sense? I had a, a friend one time. He, he uh, actually worked with him. He, he founded a, an organization called uh, Friendships. And every once in a while, we'd take the youth group, would go down, and we'd go through all this rotten food. Basically, what Friendships would do is they would take everybody's rotten food, the food they threw away, they'd dig through it and find all the good food, separate all the rotten food and then they'd get on that boat they'd take care of it and they'd take it over to people who had no food and provide for them their food so whenever a a supermarket was clearing out all the cantaloupe or all the watermelon or whatever the kids would go there and start digging through they thought it was fun i don't know what to tell you they're digging through rotten you know how you tell what rotten watermelon at least the ones i saw there you go down to pick it up and your hands go through it like it's paper. And then the smell hits you. And them kids would throw that at each other. Thinking, they were thinking they were having the greatest time of all. Well, listen, the story of this guy is once upon a time, he owned a polo grounds in Beverly Hills. I mean, he's a very wealthy guy. And he did a lot of neat things, but he shared a story one time with us. He said that, that he, was, he was just walking down the road one day just trying to to decide, wow, Lord, is, what is it that you have for me? He was thinking about selling the polo grounds and, and doing something for the Lord, but he wasn't what, really sure what. And he's walking down the road, and he feels the, the Holy Spirit just put on his heart to open up this mailbox and yell in the mailbox, Jesus loves you. And, you know, he says, that, there's no way that's from God. There's no way. So he, he walks past the mailbox. But if you've ever felt the Lord really impress on your heart to do something, you know he didn't get very far away from the mailbox. He'd get over there and go, oh, okay, Lord, am I willing to yell, Jesus loves you in the mailbox for you? Well, is anybody around? He looked around. Looked like the street was empty. Didn't look like anybody was there. So he real quick walked over to the mailbox, you know, opened it up and said, Jesus loves you. Closed it and took off walking like this. He was like, oh, my gosh. I hope nobody saw that. And just about that time, he hears a door slam behind him and a fella yelling at him, hey, mister, hey, mister. And he's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Seriously. This guy comes running up to him. It says, I got to know, I got to know, why did you just yell, Jesus loves you, in my mailbox? And he's like, man, well, you're never going to believe me. 
But as I was going by your mailbox, I felt the Lord just impress upon my heart that I'm supposed to yell, Jesus loves you in your mailbox. And, and so I yelled, Jesus loves you in your mailbox. Well, he says, you got a couple of minutes to talk? And the guy says, well, sure. So he goes into his house, and as he comes walking into his house, he, he sits down and he notices right next to a, a, the, the chair, lazy boy chair that faces out that front window where the man sat, right beside it was a shotgun. He says, I need to tell you a story. He said, I was just sitting here thinking about how I, there's no reason for me to live. I'm going through all these problems with my wife and my family and everything sideways. And I just ready to end it all. And as I was putting the, the shotgun there and thinking about what I ought to do, I just called out and said, Lord, if, there's, if you're real, show me you're real. And he said, right then, you yelled, Jesus loves you, in my mailbox. <laughs> Is that a trip? The truest stories are the trippiest stories ever. And so he sat there and, and talked to the man about Jesus Christ. And he got saved because he was willing to do what God called him to do. I shared that with a youth group one time. It was funny. I shared it with the youth group, and they're like, wow. So they were doing a, a car wash over at Del Taco. And they're washing the car, and all of a sudden I see these girls talking back and forth. And, what are you guys talking about? I said, well... I think, I think the Lord wants me to go talk to that guy in the drive-thru about, about Jesus. He wants me to go share with him. Is he sure? Oh, man, I'm pretty sure. And he's going to be out the drive-thru pretty soon. So I said, well, go ahead. So she went over and, you know, knocked on his door, and he rolled down the window across from him, you know, while he's waiting in the drive-thru. And she went and shared the Lord with him. That's what, that's what the Lord does when we're obedient to him, Right? We have an opportunity to share the truth with people all over the place. And all it takes is that willingness to say, am I willing to do what God's calling me to do? Because Abraham was willing, we know that God would provide himself. You remember what Abraham named that mountain? In the King James, it's Jehovah Jireh. It means God will provide himself, the Lamb. God will provide himself. For in this mountain, Abraham said, it will be provided. You know the other name for Mount Moriah? Calvary. Golgotha. The place where Jesus would be offered a thousand years later on that same mountain. Well, here we have Moses, the Lord talking to Moses about the, the lamb. The lamb. Over and over again. The lamb. This is important because I want you to remember these dates. The 10th of Nisan was when the lamb was to be presented and examined. The lamb would be examined from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan when the lamb would be offered as a sacrifice. Why do I say watch those dates? Because you're going to see Jesus present himself at the temple on the 10th of Nisan. You're going to see him examined. For four days. And you're going to see him declared righteous. Pilate will say, I find no fault in him. And what will they do? Crucify him anyway. Why? Because the lamb had to be without blemish. Without spot. Without sin. The same thing that, that God is telling the children of Israel way back at the beginning. 
God himself is going to do so that the people will recognize the work that he does. Look, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, 14th of Nisan, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill, look what it said, it, singular. The whole congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Literally between the evenings. Between the evenings. Same time, Jesus is going to be offered up on the cross. We see the lamb that that tells us the story before the Messiah ever came. Doing the same thing. And year after year after year after year, the children of Israel would celebrate this same feast do everything the same way. The children would ask the same questions. The fathers would answer those same questions. What was the purpose? What was the point? So that they would recognize when the Lamb came. But you had to believe His Word. Because if all it was was a ritual, if all it was was words on a page, then it was just another thing you do. You know, it's kind of like in our world, right? Most people, Christmas is Santa Claus and getting presents. But that's not how it always was. Well, it's how it was way back in Babylon, but it's not after the church took it. It wasn't that way. But that's the way it's becoming, right? Just another ritual. What about Easter? Easter was all about the Passover, the resurrection, resurrection morning. What does it become? Bunnies and eggs. The, the opportunity, I mean, the two times when people go to church the most. Almost every church is full on Christmas and Easter. And what is it? It's just a ritual. It's not taking the word and saying, man, this is truth. This is real. So this is what they're going to do. They're going to sacrifice this sheep, this lamb, Killing it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. I want you to picture this real close. First, you're to strike the two doorposts. And then the lintel. You're going to put it above and on each side. But first, you're going to strike it on the side. They tell them to use hyssop. Over and over and over again, you're going to see hyssop used. Hyssop is always used within the sacrifice to bring purification, to bring righteousness. Hyssop was always what, what, what is also what was used to try to offer Jesus water. Remember when they gave him vinegar mixed with water? They, they lifted up to him the gall that they wanted him to take. Jesus didn't take. They offered it to him on hyssop. So hyssop's like mistletoe. looks like mistletoe. So you picture it. They've killed the lamb the blood is in a device they're going to dip this mistletoe this hyssop in it and this is what they're going to do this is the door they're going to strike this door post they're going to strike this door post and they're going to strike this and when they walked away from their door what did they just paint a cross they just painted a cross you take a brush at home 
and sling it to one side, the other side, and then straight down like that. What did you just do? Just made a cross. On every house that they applied the blood, the angel would pass over. That is so important to understand. Not on every house that said, yeah, that sounds... I I believe God's going to pass over. What did they have to do? They had to apply the blood. Didn't matter. You say you believe or you don't believe. You say, I don't believe in that, but I still sacrifice that lamb and I still follow all the other things, but I didn't put the blood on. What happened to them? Firstborn died. Firstborn died. The blood had to be applied. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. What is the requirement of salvation? Repentance. Repentance. The application of the blood. You had to apply the blood. You had to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am guilty. I am a sinner. I repent. I ask for your forgiveness. We apply the blood. And when we apply the blood, what happens? You pass over. He passes over. They had to apply. What if they were Egyptian? What if it was an Egyptian family and they heard about it? They saw what they were doing. They did the same thing and they applied the blood. What happened to them? They were saved. The death angel passed over. Why? Because they applied the blood. Blood was so important. It was so important. You guys remember the, the movie, that The Passion of the Christ? You remember when Jesus has, had been beaten and they drag him off? And his mama and, and Mary Magdalene go up there and they're sopping up the blood. A lot of people would ask me, why they do that? Well, I don't know if they did or not. But I think what was trying to be portrayed is that blood is precious. Hebrews chapter 6, what does it tell us? Don't trample the blood of Jesus. Don't just walk through his blood like it's nothing. That blood is so valuable. For in the application of the blood... We have the forgiveness of sins. And salvation is wrought because of his sacrifice, right? Because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, all pictured in the Passover lamb. That the lamb would be sacrificed, that the blood would be applied to the house, to the doors. Then, verse 8, They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, And with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And they're going to, they're going to establish what that's all about, what that's all talking about. But what is, why did it have to be roasted in the fire? Completely. That lamb had to be completely devoured that night and everything had to be cooked on the fire. And the fire spoke of judgment that all the judgment for all the world's sins was burned up right there with that lamb as it was cooked on that fire. Pointing to Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that takes away all the sin of the world. One sacrifice, one man. By one man, Paul would say, sin entered into the world. And by one man, Jesus Christ, 
it is all washed away. But you had to what? Apply the blood. But blood's not applied. If the blood's not applied, that's not, that's not reality. It's just hearing the words. It's just seeing them on a page. If they didn't apply the blood, then they too were doomed. They ate it with unleavened bread. What does leaven speak of? Sin. Leaven speaks of sin. So they would eat unleavened bread. It's, it's the same picture that we have, isn't it? When we have our koinonia, when we enjoy communion, what do we have? Unleavened bread. Why? Because it is bread without sin. What did Jesus say? This bread is what? My body given to you, broken for you. His body without sin. His body perfect. His body given as a sacrifice. Even back here, way back in Exodus, the Lord was developing, was building, was showing His perfect plan of salvation. Even then, they would eat this meal with unleavened bread, pointing to the sinless life of Jesus Christ. They would eat it with bitter herbs. Why? Because their bondage was bitter. Their bondage to Egypt. What is Egypt to you and I? Egypt is the world. Our bondage to the world, our bondage to sin, that Jesus Christ breaks away. No more are we bound to that, but we experience the freedom that Jesus Christ promised to all who would believe, right? That we would believe and we would be free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed in Jesus Christ. It's all picturing that perfect work that God is going to do. Well, he goes on. He says, Do not eat it raw, nor boiled with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. Its head, its legs, and its entrails. Totally and completely consecrated to God. Mind, walk, heart, all totally submitted to God. All given in the sacrifice. All consecrated unto Him. Everything. All of it. Don't water it down. Don't boil it. Don't do something else with it. Because the reality is, we have to recognize that the incredible price that was, was paid. What had that lamb ever done? Nothing. That was the point. It would require innocent blood to cover or to pay the price, ultimately in Christ, of man's sin. He said in verse 10, You shall let none of it remain until morning. What remains of it in the morning you will burn with fire. All once. All given one time. Don't eat of it the next day. You don't need to keep it in the fridge and keep going back to it. One sacrifice, all time. This is what he's, he's picturing as we take a look. Eat it, and it must all either be eaten or burnt. Totally consecrated. Why? Because Jesus would say what? From the cross, he would cry out, Te telestai. Paid in full. It is finished. It is completed. It is done. It is over. Folks, while you're considering that, 
consider the book of Hebrews. When we look at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews begins in verse 1, chapter 1. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the world, who being the brightness of His glory, the expressed image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. At one time we had the words of the prophets. One time we had this and we had that. But He has in these last days, this time, any time after Jesus' crucifixion is known as the last days. He has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. What did He say? It is finished. It's paid for. It's done. The fulfillment of the very promise that we're reading, first spoken in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall of man, developed in a greater degree in Exodus chapter 12, fulfilled in Jesus' walk as He gave Himself for the perfect sacrifice for us all. Let none of it remain. And thus, He says in verse 11, you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So you shall eat it in haste. You shall eat it ready. As far as I'm concerned, the Word of God is filled with the concept of imminence. What does imminence mean? It means conduct yourself every single day of your life like this is the day that I'm going to see my Lord face to face. The doctrine of imminence. The imminent return. How were they to eat the Passover? Ready to go. Eat it ready to go. Ready to move. Because right after this, you're going. You're moving forward. You're going on. God has plans. The children of Israel will be set free. They're going to begin their journey toward the victorious life. The victorious Christian life was his is a picture of the promised land. How did they enter into that life? How did they enter into their rest? How did they do it? They did it by faith, by believing the word that God said. Everywhere you put the sole of your feet, I've given it to you. Put your faith and trust, your hope, put it all in me, and I'll carry you through. Why did it take them so long to get there? Because when they got there, they did not believe. They didn't believe. And the writer of Hebrews would tell us, hey, don't be like those guys who didn't believe and so never entered into the rest. Their life was just always all this tumult, all, this, all these issues, never really found their peace in Christ. Because He is, the Bible says, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Our rest is in Him. Doesn't matter how much the storm's blowing, does it? If our rest is in Christ, let the winds blow. That's what the disciples learned, wasn't it? The first time, remember the storm? The first time they were freaking out, Jesus, don't you care? What about the next time? They're just at the, at the oars. They're just rowing. They're not getting anywhere. 
The storm's blowing. The waves are tossing. They still feel sick to their stomach. They're still upset. But what's the difference? Now they are believing. Jesus told us, go to the other side. If God says, go to the other side, we're going to get to the other side. We just got to keep what? Rowing. And who came to them walking on the water? Jesus. Right in the midst of the storm. Jesus, because he is our rest. So eat with your sandals on your feet. Be ready. Get up every day with that concept. Today's a day I meet my Lord and Savior. And what do I want to be doing when I meet Him? How do I want to be living? Where do I want to be spending my time? What do I want to do today? This is the day that the Lord has made. There was one of them. The Old Testament, to all the Old Testament saints, the Lord said this. One day, this is the day the Lord has made. It was in the month of Nisan, by the way, when Jesus, on the one day that Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, that Jesus would enter in, come walking into Jerusalem, and be declared as the Messiah. That's why when they came to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they said, these people, they don't know what they're doing. You need to make them be quiet. You remember what Jesus said? If I told them to be quiet, what? The very rocks would cry out. Why? Because this is the day. The day that Jesus presented himself as a sacrifice for the people. The day he came back. The only day he let people openly proclaim him as Messiah. The day. There's one for each of us. There's one this day. The Lord has made, the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die. What's that mean? I mean, we all have a date. It is appointed. We all have a date. Even more than that, the Bible teaches us, hey, you don't know when the master's coming. he come at any time. That's Jesus. You can come at any time. So, be ready. Eat sandals on your feet. Staff in your hand, ready to go, ready to go. You've applied the blood. The Passover has come. Now be ready to move. Be ready to move forward. Be ready to grow. So eat it so that you're ready. And verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Against all the gods. Now, the Egyptians had 3,000 gods. You remember, we've gone through a few of them, uh, just so I can remind you of, of a few of them. Canum, the guardian of the Nile. Hopi, the spirit of the Nile. Cyrus was the, the lifeblood of the Nile. Toret, the hippo goddess of the Nile. Nu, the god of life in the Nile. Geb, the god of the earth. Goes on and... Judge Amon-Ra, the creator God, who was symbolized by those beetles and the locusts that would come. You have Nut, the sky god. You have Hecht, the frog goddess. Hathor, the cow. Imhotep, the god of medicine. All of these gods in each of the plagues is being judged. All of these gods, the Lord says, I brought my judgment against them. What is the point? What is the purpose? Why? Because I am the Lord. I am Yahweh 
Vahweh. The YHVH. I am the becoming one. Because all these gods won't, won't carry you through. All these gods cannot save. There is one. And I am. That's what he's saying. That's why when Jesus came saying all these things, like before Abraham was, I am, they were picking up stones. They know what he's saying. They understood what he was saying. He was declaring himself to be the I am, the one who set the people free. Now, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house. What's the sign? We talked about it, right? It's a cross. Way back then. Hundreds, if not thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. You want to really mess with your mind? Read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 depicts the crucifixion 800 years before crucifixion existed. And it is the very thoughts of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it begins with a phrase you may remember. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's incredible. Before crucifixion was even invented, David was describing it in a song. Sharing, prophesying with you and I today what was going on in the mind of our Savior while he was on the cross. You'll be amazed because you read in Psalm 22, well, you trusted in God, surely he will save you. You trusted in, isn't that what they said to Jesus on the cross? The same things you're going to read in Psalm 22. Why? Because some guy a long time ago just got lucky or because God gave his message to his people in our Bible that we sit and read and study on Sunday and on Wednesday. You know the beauty of God's Word? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about the 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years? You ever play the telephone game and sit around in a circle and one dude whispers something to another dude whispers something to another dude and by the time it gets all the way around the other end, the story's all messed up? But you're telling me 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years from, from slaves to kings all fit together with one common message, God's redemption of man, and includes the most incredible and specific uh, prophecies known to mankind just by accident. Whoops. There it is. The Word of God, living, true, powerful this is what it's declaring to us now the blood will be a sign on the houses where you are and when i see the blood i will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when i strike the land of egypt folks what was the proof that the people believed what god told them the proof was the blood was on the door that's the proof. Was it the work of putting the blood on the door? Is that somehow the thing that, that saved them? No. It wasn't the work that saved them. It was the faith that they had that they applied it. 
In faith, they believed. Faith. By faith, Abraham was called the friend of God. By faith. Why did God call Abraham his friend? He does it right after Genesis 22. Because he's thinking, hey, Abe, now you and I, we can talk about what it's like to offer your only begotten son. He was called the friend of God. It is a sign, and I will pass over you, and the plague will not be upon you. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. And you shall keep it as a feast, by what? An everlasting ordinance forever. Keep it forever. He's going to go on to describe it, but we're going to stop there tonight. And I I just want to share one other verse with you, and we'll close with some worship. In uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. The Lord through the Apostle Paul, says to us, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For what? For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He was sacrificed for us. So many people, they'll... They get hung up on things. And we've talked tonight about applying the blood. They had to apply the blood. And, and people will say things like, well, well, how do I do that? I mean, do I have to plead the blood of Christ? Do I have to, you know, all these, all these things, all these, all these rituals we want to come up with. Folks, applying the blood simply means I go to Jesus and, and, and ask that His blood wash away my sin. That I repent. No man can come to God on the basis of I'm a good guy, but I just want to make sure I'm going to be okay, Lord. So, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to put you on the throne of my life. That's not what it's about. It's about repentance. Repentance requires that I go to God and I declare He's right. I'm a sinner. I broke His law. I need His Son's blood to wash me clean. Right? Nothing but the blood. It sets us free. It washes us clean. We must repent and believe. And the proof that I have faith is that I take my sins to God and I give them to Him. And His blood washes me white as snow. Here it is, Lord. Cover me in Your blood. Make me clean. That's all it is. It's all going to take place right in here. But the evidence of it, I agree with the Lord. There's a lot of time I didn't agree with God. No, Lord, you know, that's not really sin. (laughs) Well, then, Jackie, that's not really repentance. You can't really repent from something you don't think is sin. 
God's right, right? Let God be right and every man a liar. God's right. We put our faith and trust in Him and allow that blood to wash us clean. And by faith, we apply it on our hearts, don't we? It's not on a doorpost anymore. It's on my heart. By faith, I believe that when I cling to Jesus Christ, when I, when I reach out and ask that His blood would wash me white as snow, I believe that God did what He said He would do. He who knew no sin became sin for what? That I might become the righteousness of God. Remember the prodigal son? What did the father do as soon as he got to him? Put his robe around him. Why? He made him righteous. What is it that God does to us? We read the book of Revelation. You're going to see these characters known as the 24 elders trucking around in heaven wearing white robes. Why are they wearing white robes? Well, they sing a song of the redeemed in chapter 5. The song of the redeemed because you, O Lord, have redeemed us from every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven. You have redeemed us. You have cleansed us. You have made us right by your blood. It's us. With him. With the Lord clothed in His righteousness, made that way through His blood. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank You that we can come before You, Father, and just put ourselves down before You. Lord, here I am, God, a sinner. And I believe that the blood of Jesus Christ washes me clean from every sin. Father, I thank you that that we here in this place, we indeed can apply the blood in our lives. Lord, wash me white as snow. So such a blessing, God. Such a blessing to experience forgiveness of sin. Such a blessing to know, God, that it's that faith and trust in the word that you gave us that makes us white as snow. Father God, I just thank you so much that you established all of this in Genesis chapter 3. You put it into practice in Exodus chapter 12. You fulfilled it in the four Gospels. And we today get to experience God's plan of redemption because our God is mighty to save. And He fulfills the word that He gives. He has paved the way that we might know Him more and more. God, we thank You so much. We ask Your continued hand to be upon this fellowship, Lord. We pray that we would continue to affect our our neighborhoods, Lord, our towns, our, our regions, the places where we live, that we would be light and salt, that we would bring people to you, that they too may experience being white as snow by the application of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you for the gift of your Son to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.